Does the Bible say that Moses grew horns? And do the Psalms talk about a fat mountain? And if so, what does that mean? Today's going to be a fun episode. We're going to dive deep into some Bible translation history and see what we can learn about the mistakes, mishaps, and other things that happened in the crazy history of Bible translation. My name is Andrew Case. This is Working for the Word. Here we go. get into this issue of Moses' horns, we have to go all the way back to the Dark Ages. What was going on? Well, there were Anglo-Saxon translations being produced and illuminated during a period of remarkable creativity. And they were highly influential, but not always in the way that the translator or artist intended. So this brings us to a guy named Aelfric who was an intelligent Anglo-Saxon monk who translated the first seven books of the Old Testament known as the Heptateuch. And this was towards the end of the 10th century. Now, we know very little about Aelfric other than his reputation as one of the most skillful writers and translators of his time, but he did something very interesting that had a massive impact on history and a very unfortunate one. Here's what he did. He was translating the Vulgate, the Latin of Jerome, into Anglo-Saxon. So he was not actually going from the Hebrew. And so when we get to Exodus 34.29, it says in the NIV, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with Yahweh. Now, the NASB, a little more literal, says in the last part, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone. Now, from both of those translations, and I actually couldn't find a translation that reflects what the Vulgate did, but the Hebrew actually has a really interesting idiomatic expression to communicate this idea of his face shining. So, basically, it talks about Moses not knowing that his face was sending out or displaying horns on the skin of his face. Now, this is a relatively rare verb in the Hebrew Bible, garan. So if we look up garan in the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon, we can see the first definition here is to send out rays, and it references three different places where that happens, Exodus 34.29, Exodus 34.30, Exodus 34.35. And then we see it used in another way in Psalm 69.32, where it says, and it will please Yahweh better than an ox or a young bull with horns. And so it's talking about a young bull displaying horns. And so this meaning of sending out rays is actually more common than the meaning to display horns for this verb. Now, this could be misleading to somebody like Jerome because the word for horn is geren. And so you can 
hear this in a name like the name of Job's third daughter in Job 42, 14. And he named the first Jemima and the second Keziah and the third Keren Hapuk. Keren Hapuk means horn of antimony. So you hear that relationship between Keren and Garan, right? And then we also have Garnaim, which is the dual form of the word. So here's what happened. Jerome seemed to have been a little confused by the various possible meanings of the Hebrew word. And he chose to translate this as Kornuta, which literally means horned. So Moses came down the mountain as a horned Moses. Now what's even more fascinating than that is that no one really was surprised by this when Jerome initially published his Bible. It didn't cause much of a stir at that time because horns had been used for centuries on idols and icons to denote power. Gods and kings, including Alexander the Great, were frequently depicted as wearing them, and they were ubiquitous on helmets as well. So Jerome may have been mistaken in his translation, but the thought of Moses wearing horns on his head, if anyone really thought of that, was not particularly striking at the time. And since horns are a symbol of power in Hebrew, nobody would be surprised that Moses, such a powerful man of God, such a powerful figure in the Old Testament, would suddenly sprout some horns. But time had passed, 600 years between Jerome and Aelfric. That's a lot of time, and that changed the way people thought of this. Now, what Aelfric did was he went very literal with what he had in front of him from Jerome. And so, Aelfric's Old English version described Moses' face as gehernd. I don't know how to pronounce Old English, but that's my best attempt. Or horned. And an illuminated copy of his manuscript appeared. And it included various images of Moses with horns. This, in turn, launched an entire motif in Western art of Moses having horns. So over the coming centuries, the horned Moses cropped up in church art and Bible illustrations all across Europe. Very often, even in biblical scenes that preceded the one in which his face became, quote-unquote, gehernd. The most famous of all depictions is actually Michelangelo's 1513 statue of Moses. Now, as you might expect, this whole thing fired the imagination of medieval superstitions about the Jews, which ran rampant in the Dark Ages. If Moses was gehernd, logically, people thought to the, you know, in the medieval mind that all Jews had horns. Now, I hope you're sitting down for this. In 1267, an ecclesiastical synod in Vienna ordered Jews to wear a horned hat. And in the same period, Jews in France were required to wear a yellow wheel with a horn in the middle. So this idea of a horned Jew became rooted in the popular imagination, and it still survives today. There's a woman named Amy Jill Levine, one of the foremost scholars of the Jewish origins of Christianity. And she says that she's been asked twice where she had her horns removed. So just because this little translation was too literal, we went from the horn being an ancient symbol of power 
and majesty to the horn becoming one of the most virulent symbols of anti-Semitism. So a word to those who are obsessed with literal Bibles and wished we just had more literal Bibles or Bibles that were more literal. Be careful what you wish for. Now, after that whole mess, we get into the season of the Crusades, one of the most embarrassing and tragic seasons of church history. And in the early 1200s, there was a pope named Pope Innocent III, and he went after a sect with his crusades, a 20-year crusade. He went after a sect known as Cathars. Now, according to the church, the Catholic church, the Cathars were guilty of the Albigensian heresy because it had its origins in the town of Albi near Toulouse. Now, the Cathars were Christians, but far from orthodox in their doctrines. They had a dualist theology, unfortunately, in which two deities, one good and one evil, competed for control. Now, they did believe in reincarnation, but they also believed in Jesus' teaching. And so, oh, it was a kind of a mess. And uh, they clashed big time with the Catholic Church. Now, what they were really mad about was the predilection of the church for material wealth and splendor. There was an incredible chasm between the impoverished lives that ordinary people lived and the pampered privileges of the clergy. So the peasants who endured hardship and poverty saw priests and bishops living lavish lifestyles, wearing fine clothes, living in splendid dwellings. Some of them even had their own castle And much of their wealth came from taxes and tithes levied upon the poor. So as you can imagine, when you have that kind of spiritual, quote-unquote, spiritual leadership, there's going to be a big movement that's going to form on the opposite side. And so the Cathar movement attracted up to 4 million followers in its heyday because they were really incensed about this issue. The peasants resented the Catholic Church and considered Catharism to be a noble and virtuous alternative. And as things usually went around this time in history, people ended up name-calling. So the Cathars called the Catholic Church a harlot and the Pope the Antichrist, and the Church called the Cathars vermin, serpents, and demons. So a real nice little discussion going on there. Aren't you glad that today in America we don't have name-calling in the public discourse anymore? We've moved on past that because we are illuminated, civilized people. Now, what's actually surprising to me is that, at first, the Church and the Cathars tried to resolve their differences in public disputations. So they would get together in courtyards and banqueting halls of great castles and noble homes. And then they would have these big dramatic gatherings. So peasants and landowners would flock from miles around to hear the Catholic priests take on the Cathar leaders. So what was the main point at issue in these disputations? Well, it was Jesus' message. And the Cathars quoted exclusively from the New Testament basing their arguments on the literal meaning of the text, and here's where we get into Bible translation. They drew their quotations both from the Vulgate and its translation into their own Occitan language. And you can see a copy of that Cathar Bible in the Municipal Library of Lyon. 
Now, the Catholic Church cited both Old and New Testaments, but they had little confidence in their own position, and they refused to admit extracts from the Occitan translation into the debate. Now, as you might expect, these debates didn't get them very far, and the Pope eventually became enraged, and he called for a crusade. And this crusade lasted 20 years. Now, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of deaths. The region where most of the Cathars were from, Languedoc, was completely destroyed. It was once prosperous, but its population was basically annihilated. And finally, in 1229, a council in Toulouse said that henceforth, people were forbidden from reading the Old or New Testaments, even in their original languages, other than the book of Psalms. They were expressly prohibited from having translations of the Bible. Even before the decree was issued, translations had been burned in Metz and Calis. And this prohibition became the first act in what was to become an endemic medieval persecution of the translated Bible. And from then on out, all up until Wycliffe, and even further beyond Wycliffe, the persecution was heavy. Here's something that was said about Wycliffe's translation. A guy named Henry Knighton said that Wycliffe translated from Latin into the language not of angels, but of Englishmen, so that he made common and open to the laity and to women who were able to read that which used to be for literate and perceptive clerks and spread the evangelist's pearls to be trampled by swine. Then we've got Thomas Arundel, Archbishop of Canterbury. In 1408, he wrote to the Pope denouncing Wycliffe as, quote, that pestilent wretch of damnable memory, yea, the forerunner and disciple of Antichrist, who, as the complement of his wickedness, invented a new translation of the scriptures into his mother tongue, end quote. Now, to give you an idea of the continued corruption within the church around these times, one week after Christopher Columbus set sail for America, Rodrigo Borgia bribed his way to the papal throne in Rome. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know this until recently. He bribed his way to the papal throne. And he took the name Alexander VI, and this was a good-looking guy. He was charming, witty, and manipulative. And he's actually considered to have been the most corrupt pope in history as well. Big surprise. He kept a string of mistresses and bestowed wealth, favors, and titles on his illegitimate children. So this was a rough time and ripe for the beginnings of a reformation. A lot of people know about indulgences during this time, but maybe not as many people know about dispensations, which were just as ethically dubious. So with dispensations, a priest under a vow of celibacy could, if he paid somebody enough, he could obtain a dispensation to take himself a mistress. Or for another sum of money, he could divest himself of one paramour and settle down with another. And dispensations could also be purchased for a son born from such a union 
so that he could enter holy orders. Now, when Martin Luther finally came along, the whole idea of sola scriptura began to blossom. And this implies that the Bible needs to be taught based on an understanding of the original languages. Now, relying on a translation requires a trust in the translator's skill and choice of words. And as, as such, translations cannot be considered to be sola scriptura. Now, Luther appreciated the importance of this idea and of understanding the Hebrew language, of course. But here's the catch, and this is tying back to this whole discussion or issue of anti-Semitism. Luther had a big problem with the Jews, and the Jews had been analyzing and interpreting the Old Testament for centuries based on their own comprehension of Hebrew grammar. And if Luther, he found himself in this bind, if he encouraged people to do what the Jews did, there was a very real risk that they would end up believing what the Jews believed. And he didn't want to have that. That was actually worse in his eyes even than assenting to Catholic doctrine. So Luther needed to find a different methodology that would help keep people away from this, but at the same time help them understand the sense of the Hebrew text. So yes, I know we all love Martin Luther. Maybe maybe some of you don't. I do. I admire him immensely. So many things that he did, so many things that he was, right? Uh, this is not a time to hate on Martin Luther, but I fully acknowledge that Luther had some major sins in his life and major blind spots, and this was one of them. Now, he, to solve this problem, created an artificial distinction between grammatical and spiritual Hebrew. So, grammatical Hebrew was what the Jews and their rabbis made use of, but as Luther argued, since they had relied on that, they had missed the real message of the Bible, namely the Messiah, and so what they had needed was a spiritual understanding of the language. So he argued that that wasn't enough just to have the original sense. You would have to transcend the simple grammatical meaning of the language and understand the spiritual context. And the rabbis had failed to do this. And Luther explained this in rather abusive language. He wrote, It's a great benefit that we have received the language from them, but we must be aware of the dung of the rabbis who have made the Holy Scripture a sort of privy into which they have deposited their foulness and their exceeding foolish opinions. Now, what was different about Luther is that his translation of the Bible was the first translation to reinforce his theological outlook. It was, it was designed for that. There had already been some German translations of the Bible previously, but his by far gained the most popularity, and it was the first to be used as something to argue for an ideology. So first he changed the order of the books in the New Testament, broadly following the sequence which Erasmus had established. The crucial issue was that he added one word in Romans 3.28 to lay down a direct challenge to the doctrine of Rome. This was obviously the issue of salvation through faith, and the church had taught for a long time that this could be, salvation could be achieved equally through faith and through correct deeds, and Luther maintained that it could be attained through faith alone, 
alone. So this single one-word addition went to the heart of his theological dispute with Rome. Now, we're about to get into something really interesting that I don't think a lot of people have talked about in Luther's biographies and such. But when he got to the translation of the Old Testament, it was not as easy as he thought. It was a big tension. And that's because all of a sudden, he was faced with his own anti-Semitism. And also, he was having health problems at the time. But he took 10 years to complete this translation, which actually sounds pretty fast, but it was slow for him. So you can imagine how torn he was. Here he was translating a Jewish book, an intensely Jewish book, while at the same time vigorously denouncing Jews. Now, another reason Luther's translation of the Old Testament took so long was that he wanted his Bible to be seen as a literary work that was exemplary in the use of the German language. And so there were times that he struggled to find the best form of words and would agonize for days. One time he spent four days agonizing over the best way to render just three lines from the notoriously difficult book of Job. Now, in his translation philosophy, excellence of language was more important to him than literal meaning. So he wasn't afraid to deviate a little from the direct translation of a phrase in order to convey the sense better in German. Now, one of the famous examples of this is in Psalm 68, 16. So let's look at that together. Now, this is a fascinating verse to look at in various versions. So let's start with the ESV. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain? KJV, why leap ye, ye high hills? NASB, why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks? NIV, why gaze in envy, you rugged mountain? In Spanish, we'll go with the Reina Valera 60. ¿Por qué observáis, o montes altos? High mountains. So as you can see, this is obviously not an easy verse to translate, and that's because the description of the mountain or mountains here, the adjective, is a very uncommon word in Hebrew. And so you have this adjective gavinon. BDB translates this as peak or rounded summit and also suggests many peaked as a meaning here. But the confusion lies in that it's related to a word or may be related to a word that means to swell or swell up. Now, what did Jerome do? Jerome translated this as fat mountain. Now, Luther didn't exactly like that. He didn't want to conjure up images of a mountain smeared with lard. So he decided on translating it as a fruitful mountain. Now, there was a 12th century Jewish Bible interpreter and grammarian named David Kimchi who considered the Hebrew word to imply that the mountain is to be distinguished by its height. And there's another guy named Abraham Ibn Ezra, also an ancient commentator, and he associates it with a root word in Leviticus 21.20, meaning rounded or humped. Leviticus 21.20 is in the context of God saying, speak to Aaron, saying, none of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach 
to offer the bread of his God. And it goes on to list all of these different kinds of people who cannot approach. And one of them is a hunchback, translated as a hunchback. KJV says a crookbacked. The NASB says a hunchback and also the NIV. So that's the word in Hebrew being translated there. So my question at this point is, what does the UBS translation guidebook say about this issue? Well, I'm looking at it right now, and interestingly, it doesn't actually address the issue. It talks about a lot of other things going on in verses 15 and 16, but it doesn't actually address this whole lexical problem. And I'm surprised. It's a little unfortunate because translators are going to be faced with this dilemma when they see the wide differences between the different translations that they're looking at, and it's going to be hard to sort through. So what would my advice be to translators? Well, this is an obscure term, so we can't be dogmatic about what it means, and it isn't a super crucial doctrine here. (laughs) It's not crucial at all whether we put one adjective or another with this mountain of Bashan. It's not even describing Mount Zion. It's describing this other mountain looking with envy at Mount Zion. So, So I would ask the team, what kind of words do you use to describe large mountains in your language? And we could talk about that, and then we could pick something that's pretty generic like massive or tall rugged mountain, you know, those kinds of words. And I think tall is a pretty safe one. Anyway, that's all for today. But before we go, I want to say that most of what I talked about in this episode, I drew from the murderous history of Bible translations, Power, Conflict, and the Quest for Meaning by Harry Friedman. Excellent book. It's only $9.99 on Kindle. Definitely get it. It will blow your mind. Some of these things were surprising to you today. There's way more in there to be found. So check it out. And you'll probably be hearing some more from it down the road in the future. Anyway, thanks again so much for stopping by, for taking the time to listen. I hope you learned something. If you did, share it with others who might find it interesting. Here at Working for the Word, we believe that the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey, and pointing to our glorious and beautiful Jesus Christ. This podcast exists ultimately to help you treasure the Bible, go deeper into it, and become like the man of Psalm 1.